Blog Talk Radio. Welcome one and all to the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Network. This is Robert Rogers. I am the founder of Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. Parkinson's Recovery provides support, resources, and information to any and all individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's disease and their family members. My radio show today features the amazing Dr. Jeffrey Brantley. He is an international expert on what can be used to reduce stress and anxiety, something that all persons that experience neurological challenges know something about. Dr. Brantley is the author of a series of best-selling books on mindfulness and, get this, Dr. Brantley is one of the founding faculty members of Duke University's Integrative Medicine Initiative, which I might add is famous across the globe. Dr. Brantley, from the bottom of my heart and speaking for all the listeners of the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Show, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. Well, thank you, Robert. It's a a great uh, honor, really, a privilege to be with you on the show and to support this uh, amazing and important work you're doing with Parkinson's Recovery. And I just want to say uh, thank you also to all the listeners who are, uh, you know, I'm sure are struggling with Parkinson's themselves or with uh, loved ones who have that condition. And um, I really hope that our conversation today might uh, provide some ease and peace and hopefully open some doors to increased healing and well-being. Dr. Brantley, tell us all about yourself. Well, (laughs) I'm 66 years old, so that could be a long story, but I'll try to to hit some of the highlights and uh, and leave it at that. Um, You know, I was born and raised here in North Carolina. I went to Davidson College, and I went to UNC Medical School in Chapel Hill, and I did a psychiatry residency out at Irvine in Southern California, and all this happened back in the 20th century. I think I finished the residency <laughs> in 1981. And uh, But I had the great uh, good fortune, really, in my residency to uh, work with one of our faculty, Roger Walsh, who uh, was our my first mindfulness teacher. He was doing seminar for the psych residents about um, mindfulness and mind-body medicine and all of that. And, uh, and mindfulness just really clicked for me somehow. Um, the idea that I had in me some dimension, some way of noticing what was happening that was not uh, stuck in the reactions of the personality or the fears or the anxiety or whatever, which I had plenty of, I can tell you, as a psychiatry resident at the time, um, but that I could watch all that with awareness um, was extraordinarily helpful. And at the time, I was also in a Gestalt therapy group as a patient, as a psychotherapy patient, and um, and I was practicing and learning about psychodynamic therapy in residency, and and so the uh, on both sides of that coin, everybody was encouraging me to become more self-aware, and the um, the training in mindfulness really, uh, you know, illuminated uh, all of it, and, you know the the good, the bad, and the ugly, but if you really want to grow and heal, you have to have to take a look at all of that, I learned, and that, that's what happened. So after residency, I got uh, got married, and I went, uh, my wife and I moved back here to North Carolina, and I worked for about 20 years in community mental health, and I had a small private psychiatry practice as well, just practicing traditional psychiatry, really. But through the rest of the 80s and the 90s, I was also... Um, going on meditation retreats and learning more about mindfulness and through direct experience. And I met John Kabat-Zinn in, I think, 1989. He's the father of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a way of bringing mindfulness practices into uh, one's life in the service of increased health and well-being and and dealing with, you know, challenges of uh, stress and illness and even terminal illness. And so that sort of medical or treatment model, health-based model of mindfulness, uh, really appealed to me. And and in throughout the 90s, I was uh, dabbling in that some and doing retreats. And 
uh, as you mentioned earlier, in nineteen in nineteen ninety eight, uh, some friends of mine, colleagues, and I do got got a grant from the Duke Endowment, and with the support of the Chancellor Ralph Snyderman, um, and some generous generous donors we had, um, the John and Christy Mack among others, we uh, we were able to start what has become Duke Integrative Medicine. And um, the group of us that started it uh, were deeply convinced at the time um, that the, the, a person's health and well-being um, depends very directly on their own uh, awareness of what's happening really moment by moment and the impact of the choices they're making and the nature of their own reactions to what is happening around them. Um, you know, a simple example of that is if a person is having trouble with weight control, if they're not aware that uh, they eat for emotional reasons and the kind of things they eat, they're just kind of lost in their, you know, emotions, then the chances are they won't be able to control their, their weight very well because they will be prisoners of their emotional reactions. And so uh, there's actually a lot of data and research about mindful eating and mindful weight control to illustrate the power of self-awareness to help people become more uh, in control, really, of whatever about their own health and well-being they they, uh, need to deal with. So all of us who founded Duke Integrative Medicine, the group of us, we believed in this uh, idea of increasing self-awareness, increasing self-authority, really, in the trajectory of one's own health. And as a result, um, we put the mindfulness-based stress reduction training and the mindfulness, the principle of mindfulness and self-awareness at the heart of our healing model. We weren't, of course, the only people that ever thought of this, but we, we did our Duke program around all of that, around awareness. And I'm happy to say, you know, here 15, 16 years later or more, um, it's been very um, rewarding to be involved with it and to see the the expression of awareness in people's lives and how you might say the light bulb goes on and they they're able to to respond in a very different way to the the real challenges they're facing. You know, there's a lot of uh, talk in uh, integrative medicine, and I think any good healer, no matter what label they put themselves under, uh, will say that you know we can we cannot cure everything, but there can always be healing happening. And by that we mean that you know people can change their relationship to their condition. They can learn to uh, take as good a care as possible of whatever the condition is, and they can also uh, take care, become aware, and take care of their own inner reactivity, their own sense of vulnerability, fear, anxiety, uh, anger, whatever it might be. They can take care of that in a wise and compassionate way so that they can actually find a sense of peace and ease to face whatever life brings them. And uh, this is kind of the basic principle, really, of mindfulness-based stress reduction and the title Full Catastrophe Living that John Kabat-Zinn's first book, really, uh, really speaks to that. You know, uh, it's the idea that our life is a rich spectrum of poignant and joyful and experiences and everything else. And when we can find a way to truly uh, embrace and include the full catastrophe, the full spectrum of our life experience, um, then everything gets richer, and we are the better off for it. So um, so that's a little bit of the highlights of what's happened with me. And I just finished by saying that, you know, mindfulness has been an enormous... I often tell people I'd probably be dead now if I hadn't discovered mindfulness because my approach is to uh, stress and dealing with things uh, out of the reactivity of my own personality level. Uh, those approaches, you know, like so many people, they just weren't going to cut it uh, for a long term, and they they left me feeling pretty upset and so on a lot of the time. So the mindfulness practice has helped me also deal with, you know, loss of loved ones, uh, aging, you know, medical problems of my own and the problems of others, and as well as uh, be uh, fortunate to be a part of this uh, healing enterprise of uh, mindfulness and at Integrative Medicine and at Duke and beyond. What so I doctor... thought it could be lengthy. <laughs> There's my lengthy, <laughs> short, short version of the lengthy story. <laughs> now, what Dr. Brandley has not mentioned is that in 2008, he was elected as a Distinguished Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association 
And I'm not done. In 2013, just two or three years ago, he was elected as a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Now, most psychiatrists that I know are great at prescribing medications. So given that you're a psychiatrist and your focus and interest a lifetime has been on mindfulness, are you considered to be somewhat of an odd duck out, or are you <laughs> at the center of everything that's going on in psychiatry today? Well, I, you know, probably. In fact, I was a little surprised that they um, hadn't excommunicated me but rather when I went to integrative <laughs> medicine. But instead, they uh, actually, you know, gave me those uh, honors. And um, But actually, when you look a bit deeper, you know, the mindfulness practice um, is really, uh, I like to think about it as mental health, pra- mental health practice and service for the 21st century. The, there's so much science and so much uh, we understand now about the mind and the brain and the body and health and that uh, the cultivation of awareness deliberately can make a big difference. And, and in addition, um, I think most of the psychiatrists that I had worked with for 20 years in traditional psychiatry, um, you know, I had a pre- they thought I was pretty solid. And so when I started talking about mindfulness to them, many of them were pretty interested. And part of the reason for that is that they're human beings and they feel stressed just like everybody else. And, in fact, physicians are among the most stressed groups in our society, and uh, by all the studies anyway. And so, um, so I think the message, you know, of mindfulness and mindfulness and health is very strong. And again, in the world of psychology and mental health, uh, along around the time, you know, integrated medicine became uh, more, uh, started to emerge. Uh, psychologists particularly, psychologists working with cognitive behavioral therapy and also something called dialectical behavior therapy, Marshall Linehan's model, um, those psychologists began to recognize, uh, as we believed, that if people could grow their own awareness moment by moment of their inner life through mindfulness practice, their capacity to deal with everything from um, impulsive, destructive behavior to um, depression and anxiety was going to go way up, and they could have much better outcomes. So uh, in the world of mental health, uh, and, and not just psychiatry, but other practitioners too, I think the last two or three decades have really uh, found uh, very good research, actually, about the value of mindfulness-based interventions. So I think, you know, my colleagues in psychiatry probably recognize some of that, and um, and so they, uh, you know, they, they supported it. In fact, the last couple, three years, I have been doing a once-a-month um, seminar for the psychiatry residents at Duke about mindfulness. And it came at their request. Uh, the chief resident a few years back uh, contacted me and said that the residents were stressed and they were interested and they wanted, they'd heard about mindfulness and they wanted to learn more for their professional and personal benefit. So uh, it's turned out to be a very wonderful thing. And um, so I think, you know, it, it comes back in a way to um, really the, it's what's happening in the times and uh, people are human and, and mindfulness has a lot to offer anyone. Some listeners may want to have an additional explanation of what mindfulness is really all about. They've heard the word but still are a bit confused about what's really meant when you use the term mindfulness. Can you expand on that for them? Sure. Uh, And actually, I wouldn't blame them one bit for being confused because there's a lot out there about mindfulness. (laughs) As I I read it and listen to it, sometimes I get a little more confused from the because they're you know you can you can read all kinds of things about it. I'll just share with you my uh, experience with the years of practice and the different teachers and uh, and and like that. What I found is very helpful. First of all, you know, we tell the folks, mindfulness is a human capacity for noticing, for being aware. So like your listeners right now, if they paused for a moment and just paid attention to what was happening here and now, they might notice, you know, the sensation of their body sitting. I'm noticing that myself. Or they notice the sounds around them. Or they might notice that their minds are busy or that they feel sleepy or... 
they might notice any number of things, but the part of ourselves as human beings that notices, this is the awareness. This is uh, what most of us, I think, in the field anyway, refer to as mindfulness. Um, so it's this, and, and the mindfulness, the awareness is, um, it's never not here. But what happens is we can get carried away and lost in what our thoughts are or our reactions, and uh, and we and we stop noticing. You know, we get caught up in an idea or a fear or a situation, and we get busy trying to fix it or do something about it or get away from it or get more of it or whatever. And we are no longer really paying close attention to what's to the, just noticing what's here. In the mindfulness-based stress reduction language, what we say, or what John Kabat-Zinn, uh, you know, puts it, is, um, you know, we practice, when we're practicing being mindful, just stopping, noticing, allowing what's here to be here, and just noticing it, we're practicing being, being, and not doing. We're letting things be the way they are. And we're paying attention on purpose in a friendly and non-judging way simply to see how it is, how it is right now, what's here. And we're paying attention, uh, you know, to our, uh, of course, the world around us, the input of the external world through our senses. But we also are including in our uh, mindful attention our inner life, you know, our own thoughts, our body sensations, our smells, taste, or whatever is going on in our inner world as well. And the fact that we have this capacity to actually notice all of this is, uh, is in a way, kind of a wonderful thing. Um, most of us have noticed this. When I teach classes, people say, wow, you know, I'll, I'll go around the class and I'll say, well, what brings you to the class today? I, I did that today, you know. And people started telling me how they noticed they were, you know, worried about their illness or they were um, feeling stressed out or they were feeling pretty happy because they had a good meal with a loved one. And I said, you know, the part of you that's noticing these things, that's your mindfulness. And what we talk about when we talk about practicing, really, is that we just give ourselves permission, really, to stop and notice what's happening. And some people, so it's a very natural thing. But uh, but we have to have an intention to be mindful. You know, we have to know that we can and why it would be useful. And this is where a lot of the time understanding something about the current research and thinking of the mind-body interaction and stress and health can be a kind of a motivation to help set an intention. But the strongest source of intention in my experience is people who actually stop and intend and pay attention more closely or more mindful is they begin to experience benefits that they, uh, you know, don't want to let go. They like to explore it further. Um, and there's also a certain amount of skill. You know, we have to train our attention in a way to come back to pay attention to things that we might not notice. We have to have a commitment to pausing. Somebody in the class today was pointing out that uh, they noticed they uh, they quick to speak whenever somebody said something they didn't like. And what they're trying to do, since they've noticed that, is they're trying to pause before they just blurt out another, you know, comment. And in that pause, they give themselves a chance to, um, you know, decide whether they want to, what they want to do and say. So it takes a certain uh, kind of discipline, really, in us to uh, interrupt the habits of mind and body and our reactions and stop and notice, in the flow of daily life particularly, um, and yet, you know, it, it's a natural thing, too. And it doesn't take a person, you know, 10 years on in a cave somewhere to be able to do it. Uh, there might be some benefits to that, but don't think it's a barrier. Uh, my message to folk, and I pick up from some of my teachers, is uh, right now, the present moment's where it is, and mindfulness is the part of us that notices how it is now. And it lets it be the way it is. So if I notice I'm feeling anxious or I'm distressed in my body and there's fear and all that unpleasantness, in this moment I, I can just notice that. And, you know, people say, well, what about doing something about it? And I say, well, being mindful doesn't mean you become a doormat or you stop doing what can be done. 
certainly if you notice there's something going on and you know there's something you need to do about it, like take your medicine or change position or apologize to somebody or whatever it is, uh, you know, go ahead and do it. But the the situation so many of us find ourselves in is that we've done all we can do about the situation, and yet it still carries some kind of stress for us, something that's, or distress. And then, rather than be lost in our own interior reactivity to the situation, the feelings of helplessness or vulnerability or whatever, instead of being lost and stuck there and adding more stress to ourselves, we can uh, enter this dimension of awareness. We can come from a position of awareness and simply say, wow, what's here now? What's here now is me feeling overwhelmed. What's here now is me uh, being you know, really sad or angry. What's here now is my body is really uncomfortable. And we can bring the kind of attention and compassion in that awareness to ourselves that we would offer to a loved one or, or even a perfect stranger sometimes. And in that relationship shift from, you know, distress and aversion and self-doubt uh, to a relationship of, from awareness, which is in, in, informed by compassion, uh, we uh, have the chance to actually uh, enter profound healing with ourselves. So that's, a, again, a long kind of ramble about what the naturalness of mindfulness, but also I've added on some about you know, why it might be important from a perspective of health, well-being, and really peace. After having interviewed over a thousand individuals who currently experience neurological symptoms, I think I can pretty confidently report that persons diagnosed with Parkinson's disease are typically doers. They are not pausers. And they're out there <laughs> right. doing something to the world. They're the movers and shakers. They're the folks that make the world turn around, so to speak. And so right. whenever I have had discussions with people about mindfulness, I think the hesitation to grab hold of that as an approach for reducing stress and anxiety turns on the challenge of, Hmm, it's going to take a lot of practice to be able to be mindful. What are we talking about? Three, four, five hours a day? So right, right. what does it really take to practice mindfulness? Are we talking about a person right. has to allocate four hours out of their every day to make this happen? Right. Well, I think, you know, what I would approach I would take, and I, and I run into that people don't have Parkinson's but come to very high-achieving folk in our stress reduction classes, you know, business people and physicians and professors and everybody. And some of them do have Parkinson's, some of them don't, but they all got where they got by being doers, you know. Right. <laughs> so I think it's, um, you know, that's like their self-definition and their self-concept. And, and one of the things I say is, well, you know, how's that working for you? You know, are you, are you, you know, is it really helping you deal with what you have to deal with? And then usually they'll tell me something like, well, no, the reason I'm here is my blood pressure is off or my, whatever it is. My, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have time with my kids or, you know, whatever it is. And so I say, well, you know, practicing mindfulness doesn't mean you have to stop being a doer and, a, and doing what you do. But it does invite you to uh, a couple of things. One is it invites you to explore the possibility that you are actually more than you think you are. You know, you might be a very accomplished doer, but as a human being, you're even more than that. Uh, one of the things we say in the stress reduction is no matter how much a person thinks is wrong, we believe there's more right than is wrong. And a big part of that more right, uh, we think, is the capacity of a person to take the position of mindfulness, of awareness, in any moment of their life. So, uh, you know, it's like you don't have to stop doing what you do, literally, but it's useful to explore this possibility that pausing to notice, even for a breath or a step or a bite, might begin to uh, reveal something about yourself, your life, your relationships, 
your relationship to yourself, your ideas about who you are, that could be very um, potent and transformative, you know. So what we're really talking about here is not necessarily, you know, five hours a day, although there's a point where it's kind of interesting to put yourself in that situation. Uh, A few months back on uh, 60 Minutes, Anderson Cooper interviewed John Kabat-Zinn and did a session. It's probably in the 60-minute archives. And they uh, and they took all these highly successful doers and put them in a weekend-long silent retreat. And Anderson Cooper uh, has a lot of interesting things to say about it. But maybe the most interesting thing is that he he kept practicing his mindfulness after the retreat was over because he got something out of it. Um, So what I say to folks is, you know, the present moment's where we are. Mindfulness is the part of ourselves that notices what's here now the way it is. And we can uh, explore it. We can train ourselves to come back and notice now. Now, the current data, the science, some really interesting science is out there about, um, you know, how many minutes a day do you need to practice and all that. On some level, that's, you know, not even the right question. But there is... um, data that shows that the you know, our brain and our nervous system are constantly shifting, you know, depending on the environment and our inner environment, how we're thinking, what we're thinking about, what our emotions are. And um, all this can be measured in terms of brain patterns and brain structure, really. And there's really interesting neuroscience data now that shows that the function of the brain actually shifts depending on how we use it. And uh, a landmark article came out of the University of Wisconsin, Richie Davidson's lab, and they took people who were naive to meditation, trained them in mindfulness, like an eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction class, and uh, they measured their brain activity before the class and after the class. And earlier uh, research had shown that when people self-report feelings of well-being or, you know, doing well, less stress, that the left uh, prefrontal cortex, in other words, uh, the left side of the brain in the front, uh, had uh, relatively more amplitude or activity in the in the electrical activity than the right side of the front of the brain there. And uh, so this left prefrontal uh, asymmetry, asymmetrical acti- or, uh, amplitude, uh, was associated with self-reports of well-being. But what this uh, landmark study that they published showed, and I think it was 03, was that these folks who had uh, never meditated learned to meditate, started doing the mindfulness meditation practices, and over the course of the eight weeks, the uh, brainwave uh, activity in their prefrontal cortex shifted significantly uh, in a significant number of them, and so that in the direction of this left uh, prefrontal uh, asymmetry, more left prefrontal activity. So the brainwave activity, of course, they had self-reports of feeling less stress and feeling better as well. So, um, you know, that was probably something like 20 or 30 minutes a day for most of them, plus stopping to notice throughout the day at times. Um, But the the number is uh, slippery. It's tricky about how much. The point is to recognize that our brains are actually functioning anyway, depending on how we're using them. And if we seek... We can train our, you know, train our brains by training our minds. We can change our brains and brain function by training our minds to be more present and more awake. And there are other examples too, but you know, time doesn't permit to go into all of them. But uh, on another scientific kind of cutting edge these days, so to speak, uh, actual gene expression, the expression of the genes, which is going on all the time as we're alive. Uh, is also being studied from the point of view of, uh, you know, what factors cause, say, the inflammatory gene reaction compared to non-inflammatory. And uh, and there's some studies that are starting to suggest that the practice of mindfulness actually supports the um, healthier gene expression in different conditions. This is a very new field, and it's hard to draw too many conclusions. But, um, again, the... Uh, my takeaway is that the mind body mind brain body you know unit uh responds to what's going on in our minds and emotions just like it does to what's around us in the world and as we can grow awareness 
and change our relationship to more wise and compassionate attention, um, we actually can shift the function of our brain and uh, the expression of um, different aspects of our physical body as well. This is Robert Rogers, your host from Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Brantley. Dr. Brantley, you also uh, created a series called the Five Good Minutes series, so not just 20 minutes allocated to mindfulness, but five. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was a, a, a pleasant surprise on my, for me, let me say. Uh, <laughs> after my first book, uh, Calming Your Anxious Mind, uh, got out there with New Harbinger Publications back in, I guess, oh three or four. Uh, one of the editors there, Tessilia Hanauer, contacted me, and she wanted to know if, if I thought it would be possible to create some books, really, you know, um, kind of self-help type books, but but things that uh, practices, uh, mindfulness practices people could do in five, literally five minutes. And I, I didn't didn't really know. <laughs> but I, I thought about it and reflected on it, and, and it actually came to me at some point that, uh, again, the focus is always the present moment, and it's about intention and what we do. So, um, so uh, Tessilia put me together with my collaborator, Wendy Milstein, and we ended up writing a series of books, which became quite popular, really, and um, under the name Five Good Minutes. So the first one was Five Good Minutes, and then there's Five Good Minutes in the evening and and at work and, you know, in relationships and in the body. And um, the idea was uh, the organizing principle, the common principle in all of them, is uh, really uh, three things. It's presence, intention, and wholeheartedness. So uh, in plain English, what that means is uh, we, we, we wrote, and we had a, a strict word count. I forget now. It was like 200 words maybe for each practice because they – they wanted to put like a hundred practices in each book or, or something like that. So Wendy and I would do about half of them each, you know, for each book. And um, in some cases she wrote a few more. Anyway, so uh, so in this like you know, couple hundred words or whatever, we'd give a little introduction to a theme, and then we'd have a suggested uh, five. You could literally do the practice in five minutes. And so, uh, you know, sometimes it was implicit, but often the ones I wrote, it was just explicit. I'd start out to say, uh, you know, uh, practice mindful breathing for about a minute. And I, we'd give instructions at the, in the introduction to how to do some of these basic practices. And so breathe mindfully for about a minute, which really means just paying attention to your breathing, uh, you know, letting it come and go and letting the thoughts come and go and, and coming into presence with a focus on your body and your breath for about a minute and then the next uh, minute or so would be the instruction is set your intention so let's say the practice was about you know um, getting along better with your co-workers at work and uh, and the intention might be may this practice help me um, understand my co-workers better you know it would be something in pretty plain English you know <laughs> and then the third part would be the wholeheartedness so we might have you know a few little um, and this is where some imagery might come in or some other kind of reflection. But so like with the coworker example, it might be something like, um, you know, uh, when, you're, when you're feeling upset with your coworker, um, pause and breathe and then just see if you can see the pain, see them as a person in pain. See if you can understand the, uh, the pain they're feeling behind their angry outburst, you know. And then continue to breathe mindfully and just reflect on that. And, uh, you know, see if you can, and by the same token, if your coworker is happy and successful with some project, see if you can share in the joy. See if you can be grateful, appreciative as you notice them being happy and be glad your coworker is happy, you know. So uh, so there are a number of different ways we used, um, like I said, imagery, imagination, reflection to help people work with the events of daily life, but it was always organized in each book around the idea of presence, you know, come into this moment, be mindful in this moment, intention setting, and then the uh, wholeheartedness was you do that practice without attachment to outcome. So there's no, um, 
Like, you know, that coworker better act right after I do this or else. Forget that. <laughs> it's not that kind of agenda. It's more about just doing the best you can. Because the focus of each of these really is on our own interior and our own reactions and our own awareness, trying to amplify awareness and presence and uh, open-heartedness and understanding so that we can make the most pro-social and constructive response. And that might sometimes include, you know, just walking away or changing jobs even in some of those cases. But um, but we come from a place of wisdom and understanding informed by mindfulness. And so that, that's what the books were about. And they had a became quite popular. Oprah's Magazine picked the first one as one of the five best self-help books that year. And they've been translated into different languages, some of them. And... Um, it's been a kind of a beautiful uh, surprise to me that it uh, was so popular, but I'm grateful that it could do some good. Right. Many people diagnosed with Parkinson's disease experience high levels of anxiety, and so they have, of course, a number of approaches that they can pursue to address that. There's the medication approach, there's the mindfulness approach, and they would also be both. Now, I'm sure the answer would depend on the individual, but what would be your reaction to a person who would ask, well, what would be my best choice, mindfulness, medication, or both? Well, I'd say um, only you can answer that. <laughs> in, in, in collaboration with your uh, with your doctor and maybe your mindfulness teacher, but really after doing mindfulness practice, you know, we have people come to our classes and they, they want to get off their medications. And in some cases they actually can, but, um, I mean, in other cases it's not that realistic. I mean, I, I have to take uh, medication for type 2 diabetes. And, um, you know, I don't know if I'll ever be able to come off of it. I've tried to make the right changes, but it runs in my family. So there's a certain level where, you know, we have to do the best we can and um, and just see, you know. Having said that, I also, uh, you know, tell people, well, mindfulness, particularly if you take it, you know, as a, as a serious practice and you try to use it to discover how to be your own best care, care caregiver, um, you might begin to recognize um, how stress, what the sources of stress are in your life, how does that impact your disease, the symptoms of your disease, the progress of it, how does that uh, impact even the effect of your medications, you know? Uh, one thing I can say about, uh, you know, my own case, um, you know, the medications I have to take so far are are pretty reasonable doses, and uh it, but I don't know that'll be guaranteed going forward. But I'm pretty confident if I didn't have the mindfulness practice to help recognize and manage stress, that I might have, uh, you know, been a lot worse off. And there's there's actually medical evidence to support that generalization that stress uh, can aggravate a lot of tendencies we have, like toward high blood sugar or high blood pressure or, or anxiety, whatever it might be. So my answer to that person you're talking about would really be. You know, try it. Um, try practicing mindfulness. See what you can learn about, you know, the interaction of your own mind and body and the stress of your life and the course of your illness. And uh, and, and you might, you know, find it. Don't make it your goal to stop taking all medication, but just see what you might be able to do to improve the quality of your life and your health by bringing more awareness to what's going on. If the medication goes away or goes down, uh, good. But uh, if it doesn't, you still uh, can find peace in your life if you can find a way to be more uh, accepting and compassionate with yourself and your own body uh, that needs that medication, you know? On your website, you have a reference to two words that we don't often see on websites, kindness and compassion. What do kindness and compassion have to do with healing? Well, that's a, <laughs> I think it's a shame that we don't see it more often, actually. <laughs> uh, if you, uh, I just ask you or your readers to pause for a minute and think about when either when they were children or you were children or when uh, your own children or even a neighbor's child 
comes to you and the child is in pain. You know, like when your own child has fallen down and or is scared in the nightmares or you know has to sit through the doctor's visit and get a shot or whatever it is, when the child comes to you in pain, what's the most impactful attitude? What's the most powerful healing attitude you can take? It's not yelling at them and blaming them. It's actually holding them close and comforting them. Yes? Right. That's so true. Don't don't we don't we experience that and don't we embody that kindness and compassion in every healing gesture in our life, whether we give it or receive it? You know, the power of healing really begins with a I think a sense of safety and ease. And um and then, you know, once we can provide that and, and sustain that to some extent then whatever the actual steps have to be, whether it's uh, whatever they are, you know, medications or surgeries or physical therapy or uh, whatever they are, um, or just changes in behavior, they can occur much more easily in an atmosphere that we can create by bringing kindness and compassion, you know, to the healing moment, you might say. And, uh, you know, in terms of, that's true for ourselves, too. You know, I can't tell you how many times, and in my own life I notice this, too, but how many times in our classes that people come in and say, I am my own worst critic, you know? Uh, Nobody else criticizes me the way I criticize myself. And, you know, I had an example once. A nurse came, and I said, why do you want to take the stress reduction class? And she said, uh... I'm the kind of person that's never satisfied with myself. So I can see 99 patients in my clinic, and I go home, I beat myself up, I didn't see 100. And, you know, it's like, wow. (laughs) Now, what we know about the mind-body connection and stress is that, um, you know, the thoughts we have that we generate in our own minds and hearts about anything can be like little fire alarms, you know, so like if we like that nurse starts saying to herself, I'm not doing a good job, I didn't see a hundred people and she totally blows off the ninety nine that she saw, every time she says to herself, I'm not doing a good enough job, it's like a little fire alarm. And it it's a signal that goes through her mind and into her through the brain and the body that there's danger. The body goes into the stress reaction, the blood pressure can go up, the tension goes up, the blood sugar goes up. The you know bowels get dysregulated, the immune system gets dysregulated. All these are the results, really, of chronic stress, the chronic stress reaction, firing again and again and again with very little to balance it. And uh, an important thing to recognize about that is that the power of our own inner narrative, so to speak, uh, to activate and sustain that chronic stress experience. Um, so you know when we realize that we can be our own worst critic and we can be so hard on ourselves and we might be living a life that way, we can quickly see, again, with awareness, that we don't have to take that critical side so seriously and we can start to cultivate more uh, kindness and compassion, really, for ourselves. The kindness, of course, is just treating ourselves with decency and then friendliness. And then the compassion is the the response of uh, care and friendliness and the wish to help in the face of pain. So we can uh, see the pain in ourselves with mindfulness. We can acknowledge it instead of deny it. And then we can meet it with kindness and compassion instead of the old habit of self-criticism or self-blame. And in that very moment where we shift to kindness, we are not sending out the fire alarms in mind and body, and we're not triggering the stress reaction and so our body has a chance to recover a bit more Um, so there's a very you know not only is it a natural healing posture to take kindness and compassion toward the hurt that we encounter but when we can take that as a intentional posture toward ourselves then um, then we actually begin to help our minds and bodies heal uh, using the wisdom and capacities that we're built given
Dr. Brantley's latest book is titled, get this, Calming Your Angry Mind. I want to ask you a very unfair question. Okay, how does someone calm their angry mind? <laughs> well, I can you wrote a whole book about it, right? But now just... <laughs> You're talking to somebody with a lot of experience, and I haven't had all that success calming it at times, I can tell you. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and what I've learned is actually my mind uh, it just kind of resists being calmed uh, forcefully. But what I have also learned is that if I can stop feeding the angry mind, this is one of the first steps. First step is to notice that there's anger present. You know, a lot of people don't actually realize that they're angry when they're angry. Um, there are actually a lot of very effective anger management programs out there. I, I learned something about this researching that book, and I talked to some world-renowned experts uh, about anger management, and I said, well, why is it that people don't take more advantage of your programs? And and most of them said, well, a lot of people don't acknowledge or don't recognize when they're angry. They think they're upset or anxious or excited, but they don't know they're coming across or actually being, they're angry and they're coming across as angry. So again, mindfulness could help a lot with that. And it's important to recognize, or I found, I wrote some about in the book, you know, emotions are really thoughts plus body sensations. So if we can recognize that we're feeling angry and we can do something to just pause and stop feeding the process, that's one of the first ways of calming the angry mind. It's kind of like stop throwing the wood on the fire and step back and don't put any more fuel in there, you know. Yeah. And sometimes we have to take really practical steps to just walk away or stop talking or step away from the email or or whatever, the pause and to notice. And then um you know, another piece of it again, it's mindfulness based and it's kindness and compassion based healing. So uh, we can uh, recognize there's, you know, when we're angry, really, if we can pause enough to experience it and notice it, we can notice that we're actually in some considerable pain ourselves. So, again, uh, sometimes if we could just step back and acknowledge, wow, I'm in a lot of pain here, I'm afraid, or whatever, you know, um, then we have a good chance of um, not being uh, hijacked by the reactions of uh, anger, fear, and, you know, misinterpretation, uh, fixed beliefs that aren't accurate. Um, And so the compassion for ourselves or or another person, if we see them angry, uh, you know, we still may have to set a boundary, but we might not get lost in in our own anger towards them as much. Um, And then sort of the third, so there's noticing and, and uh, not feeding the anger, to step back. There's a sense of recognizing that beneath the anger is a good bit of pain and and suffering and fear and like that, and and acknowledging the common humanity of that. And then the other kind of main direction I talked about in the book with examples was our wisdom. We recognize that our own anger is really the the it's not us. It's not an identity. It's not permanent. It comes about because certain conditions come about. And usually it involves um, not only some kind of external condition, but also an interior sense, usually a self-belief about ourselves. You know, like somebody says, Dr. Brantley, you know, you're not helping me at all. And I might say, okay, but some part of me might get really angry about that. And then beneath that anger, if I really look at it, I can realize that there's a fear in me that I'm not really able to help or I'm not really good at what I'm trying to do, or I'm faulty somehow, and there's that fear. And then if I look even deeper, I can probably actually hear some kind of negative self-inner narrative, you know, a negative view that I am i don't really believe I'm really any good anyway, or I'm not honest, or, you know, I picked up from somewhere a, uh, not true particularly, but just a self-judgment that's not inaccurate. But in terms of the anger, all it took was that external, you know, comment, and then that whole inner cascade arose. Uh, some people just shorthand that by saying it pushes your buttons. But like, why are the bu- what are the connections that are the buttons? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where's the power source for those buttons? 
if we look deeply in ourselves, we can find fixed belief and fear and all of that underneath the anger so much of the time. So that third perspective is uh, the wisdom of that. And we can investigate it, you know. It's very helpful, I think, and probably much more realistic to say, well, we're going to get angry. It's going to, it's okay. People get angry. But what we can do is, is uh, recognize it when we are angry more of the time. And maybe we can um, manage it in a way that we don't cause so much harm, not only to others, but to ourselves, by then maybe feeling guilty about it or obsessing with it. The mindfulness, the kindness, the compassion uh, will help us this way. And uh, in the book, I just I gave quite a few different types of examples and some different uh, meditation practices people could try to uh, help them, you know, like explore. While I'm really doing this, isn't like the magic bullet. This is an encouragement for people to explore their own life, really, what it means to be human and how do we deal with this uh, human realm with all the emotions and the challenges we face um, and see if the awareness and the kindness and the compassion might help us, might help us deal more effectively with, with more happiness. I am your host, Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Jeff Brantley. If you'd like to be able to learn more about his work and his amazing books, you can visit his website, which is www. And then there are four words all combined together, calmingyourangrymind.com. So that's spelled www. C-A-L-M-I-N-G, calming, your, Y-O-U-R, angry, A-N-G-R-Y, mind, M-I-N-D, dot C-O-M. One of your recent books with Wendy Milstein as entitled Daily Meditations for Calming Your Angry Mind. Seems like that would be of interest to many individuals who are listening to our program today. Tell us more about that work. Well, thanks for mentioning that one. Yeah, Wendy, uh, what we tried to do in that book was similar to what we tried to do with the uh, Five Good Minutes series, which rather than go into more lengthy explanations and meditations and examples about anger, the way I did in that the book I just talked about, the Calming Your Angry Mind book. What we tried to do with daily meditations was uh, offer shorter uh, little pithy messages or uh, examples and then shorter meditation practices. And uh, But it's still around the same organizing principles that, you know, you're not, the anger's not you, it's temporary. If you learn to recognize it, to uh, recognize your own pain with compassion and the pain of others, and to see with wisdom, you know, the components of each any moment of anger. Uh, you know, those perspectives are in that book. But we tried to offer shorter practices and a, a variety of different um, ways of looking at it from different, you know, situations in life. And um, I actually thought that little book turned out to be kind of sweet. I hope hope the readers find it that way. <laughs> Well, it's a brand-new book, everyone, and again, the title is Daily Meditations for Calming Your Angry Mind uh, by Dr. Brantley and Wendy Milstein. You'll be able to see a link to that book on the radio show page, and of course, there's also information about the book on his website as well. seems like that would be an invaluable resource. Both books would be to people that are really interested and focused on finding ways to reduce their stress and anxiety levels. Well, you've offered so many rich and insightful perspectives for people searching for ways to reduce stress and anxiety, which, of course, has a direct connection with the symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease. In the end of it all, what would you most like listeners to remember about our discussion today? Well, I think uh, two things. One is um, you've got what it takes to be mindful. 
and to trust yourself, no matter what life throws you or how bad your condition might be. The mindfulness of, uh, you know, that is to pain is not in pain. And it's a way of bringing uh, kindness and compassion to what's happening. And then the other thing about, besides trusting yourself uh, that you have what it takes to be mindful, is actually just to uh, trust in a way that the, the goodness and the kindness and compassion are also in us and to uh, cultivate those qualities whenever you feel pain yourself or you see the pain in another. What would you say to somebody who, after listening to this program, says, well, I'm not capable of becoming mindful? What would you say to them? Well, I would say, uh, why do you say that? (laughs) You know, what what makes you think you're not capable? (laughs) And they would say, but I'm a doer, I'm a mover, I'm a shaker, I've got to be out there making things happen, I can't pause. Right, well, I'd say, well, you know, uh, if you can make all the pain of your life go away that way, you know, more power to you. (laughs) But... um, You know, basically uh, anybody, in fact, I might even would say when you're out there doing and shaking, do you ever notice what's the result of your work or how you're feeling? Do you ever notice you feel excited or you notice you feel tired? And they'd say, sure. And I'd say, well, that part that notices is your mindfulness. It's the awareness that notices what's here. And the question you have to ask, you know, for yourself is um, would would it behoove me, would it benefit me somehow to grow this uh, being present, this noticing of what's here in my life, would that give me some more connection, more sense of happiness, more sense of peace and ease, uh, or not, you know? So it's something I would just encourage them, but I would, uh, you know, really uh, assure them they've got what it takes. And whatever ideas they have about... um, they have to keep moving. In fact, another interesting reflection would be, why is it you think you have to keep moving all the time? Look more deeply at what's dry, what button is connected to that, you know. Um, and is there a way to find, is, there, is the reason you have to keep moving all the time linked somehow to a, a sense of um, lack of peace in yourself uh, and a lack of, you know, ease? And what if you could find a way to touch that peace and ease? Because it's already there if you uh, can actually start to open to it. Dr. Brantley, I think my summary from listening to your rich and incredibly useful discussion on mindfulness is that many people believe mindfulness is a little deal. And yet what I'm convinced about is mindfulness is a significant pathway to health and wellness. It's a big deal, not a little deal. Yeah, I I would totally agree, Robert. And I I think um, people need to see for themselves, you know. It's like just, just start paying attention, even for a few breaths or a few bites or a few steps. And, uh, See if your life shifts in a way that's desirable for you, you know, and it'll take care of itself. (laughs) Mindfulness will take care of itself. Well, I must confess to you, Dr. Brantley, that I did become interested in mindfulness several years ago, partly because I noticed I would be in a room, a new room, for example, and I would be talking with people. I could remember the content of the conversations, but when I left... I could not describe to you the room. I couldn't describe to you the persons that I talked with. I couldn't describe to you what I smelled or felt. Or <laughs> like, I think I missed the whole experience. <laughs> so I thought, wait a minute. I need to enrich my life a little bit. Let's be a little bit more present here in the moment. So it's something that's enriched my life as well. And I want to thank you for taking the time to tell everybody else about your rich and endearing work uh, that has uh, a huge impact on helping people with Parkinson's symptoms reverse them. Thanks so much for being on the radio show today. Well, you're certainly welcome, and I thank you for your great work. I mean, you know, there's the common humanity of our condition, and, and you're just really doing so much to uh, help everybody uh, find some healing, and I appreciate it. It's an honor and a privilege. 
And that's what's happening on, you guessed it, the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you are listening to this radio program today, that you indeed are on the road to recovery. May you have a magnificent week ahead of you when you become totally and completely mindful. Good day.